Thanks, Marty. Did especially well, given your last-minute swap in. Now, do keep your Bibles uh, open there. We'll be spending our time in Zephaniah this morning. And good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm a member here at Willow, and it's my privilege to be uh, leading us through God's Word this morning. Well, I uh, don't know if you've heard this, but today is Reformation Sunday. I know you're all shocked, falling out of your chairs. What? No one told me that. Now, uh, I don't know what our collective knowledge of uh, the Reformation is like. I'm sure it, it varies a bit. And uh, Josiah did uh, you know, a very good sort of brief overview uh, of it uh, just before. But regardless of our different knowledge, a part of the Reformation that is really good for all of us to be aware of is the concept of going back to the original text, uh, to the source material. This idea was uh, something that came out of humanism, which was uh, a movement that flourished during the Renaissance as scholars and um, priests in universities and monasteries would look for the earliest available manuscripts they could find in the original language that a text was written in, rather than relying on sort of second or third-hand accounts uh, of what a translation of that text said. And these scholars, I think quite rightly, believed that going back to the original text was the best way to know what a writer was saying. Uh, to understanding, you know, the big idea that they were trying to get across. Don't rely on, you know, third-hand accounts of translations of text, go back to the original source. Maybe it seems obvious to us that that would be the case, uh, that, you know, the original source is going to be the most accurate uh, way of knowing what someone says. But we rely on handed-down accounts all the time. Did you hear what that celebrity said? Did you hear about what that politician said? In day-to-day -day life, you know, we give and receive these kind of third-hand accounts all the time. We weren't there, we didn't write the original story that we're told about. And often that's fine, because we don't have to painstakingly examine, you know, what Taylor Swift said to know, ex you know, what on earth she was talking about. And we don't have time to do it anyway. But for things that matter, we should take time to do that. We should take time to go back to the original text and see what it's saying to understand it for ourselves. And I think there's nothing that's more true for than the Bible. Because the Bible is the most important text there is. That's what the Reformers believed, uh, that's what I believe, and I hope that's what you believe too. And as it happens, this morning uh, we're returning to a very intermittent series that we're doing called The Major Messages of the Minor Prophets. And the book we're looking at isn't just a minor prophet. It's a book of the minor prophets that you could say is like the ultimate example of what a typical book of the minor prophets is about. Uh, in terms of its themes, its phrases, its setting, who it's addressing. If you want to know what the Minor Prophets are all about, Zephaniah 
is a pretty good place to start. And this provides us with an opportunity to explicitly go through the text together in a Reformation sort of way. Now, the thing is, of course, we do this every Sunday, I hope, uh, whenever one of us gets behind the pulpit. But today we're just going to do it by going behind the curtain. We'll start with a basic overview of what Zephaniah is saying and what that means for us. Then we'll start asking some questions, digging deeper into some of the passages we've read. And we'll finish by fleshing out uh, to uh, understand this book in the wider context of the Bible uh, and how it all ties together. And I hope that through this, you and I can gain a better understanding, not just of, of Zephaniah and the Bible, but that you'll also be provided with a method to do this yourself, uh, regardless of whether or not you do it already. Sound good? Let's get into it. So, first time reading Zephaniah, we did read uh, a lot of it before. What do we see on the surface? Well, verse 1 of chapter 1 introduces us, as all the minor prophets do, to the author, the prophet that the book is named after. Then from verses 2 to 6, which we also read, uh, we saw what this book is all about. Judgment is coming against the whole earth in verses 2 and 3, and that includes Judah and Jerusalem from verses 4 to 6. This judgment is coming from God and will affect everything on earth, whether man or beast or bird or fish or idols. We see in this punishment coming against Judah, against Jerusalem, uh, who are the people that Zephaniah is speaking to, that God is zeroed in on their idolatry, on their worshipping of false gods instead of worshipping Him as the true God. So already we can tell God despises idolatry and there seems to be a connection then between idolatry and judgment, between sin and punishment. And the rest of chapter 1, uh, and the rest of the book really, flows from this sort of initial statement. Uh, we read verse 7, uh, which is a, a call to worship God, to revere Him because He's prepared a sacrifice of judgment. And there, the rest of the chapter, which we sort of read the end of, is God's explanation of what His judgment will look like. And it's not a nice image, is it? Uh, it is the day of the Lord. It's the time of His sacrifice. It's an image of destruction, an image that we're meant to imagine and dread in order that we take it seriously. God's judgment for sin, for idolatry, is a serious matter. Then we come to the largest section of Zephaniah. Uh, thematically, from the start of chapter 2, um, to verse 7 of chapter 3. Uh, we read the opening of chapter 2, which is another call to worship, but the target's a little different from the one we saw in chapter 1. Rather than a, a call to individuals, because of what's going to happen to everyone and everything, this call is directed to nations, to communities, because God is going to punish nations and communities. 
So we're called to worship God again, but this time together. And then again, we see the reason why we have to come to God and worship Him was because of the punishment for sin that will come otherwise. As God tells us what that judgment will be like for Philistia, which we read, the Philistines, and then to Moab and Ammon, and then to Cush, and then to Assyria, and then finally at the start of chapter 3, to Jerusalem. And it makes sense for this to be a collective call, not just an individual one, doesn't it? As As the saying goes, no man is an island. We live in community. So surely we want to see our community saved, to see the people we know and love turn away from destruction. When we gather together here, it's almost as though we are that shameful nation coming together before the day of the Lord to seek Him together, to take Him seriously because we want to obey Him. And then the final part of Zephaniah from verse 9 of chapter 3 to the end of the book, we see this massive tonal shift. I wonder if you sort of heard it as, as Marty was reading. The day of the Lord, the moment that has been judgment, judgment, judgment up till now, becomes a day of restoration and salvation. Suddenly, the people of the world that worship God are coming together as one people. They're rejoicing. Their punishment for sin has been taken away. They will sin no more. They will be with God and He will give them honour and praise among the people. These people who have heeded Zephaniah's call, who have turned away from idolatry, back to worshipping God, will receive a glorious and perfect life with the glorious and perfect God. And that's it. That's the the basic overview of Zephaniah. So, uh, from what we've gleaned so far, what would you say is the big idea of this book? We've gotten into the, the text. How would you summarize what this book is about from what we've looked at so far? Maybe write it down if you've got a pen and paper or, I don't know, think it in your head if you don't. Whisper it to the person next to you, maybe. Perhaps you'd say something like, um, God's judgment for idolatry is coming against the world, but He promises salvation for those that are faithful to Him. Maybe you can think of something better. Um, Whatever your summary is, just keep it in mind as we continue on. Uh, For those of you with kids, I wonder when the last time uh, one of your kids asked you a question you didn't know the answer to was. Kids are pretty good at this, especially the young ones, but why? But why? But why? And I think kids ask so many questions because they're trying to figure out uh, the world around them, now that they're self-aware, and what their place in that world is. And for us, 
I think a part of a good relationship with God requires something similar. It requires us to open the Bible and ask questions, because the Bible is our best way of understanding ourselves and our place in the world God has made. So now that we've done sort of a basic overview of Zephaniah, let's ask a few questions of this text. And maybe as we go along, you'll think of your own questions uh, to read up on and think about in your own time, because there's absolutely no way we've got time to ask every question that we could possibly ask of this text this morning. So here's a first question for us. Is there any significance to verse 1 of chapter 1? We didn't actually read it, but it's basically just a genealogy. Zephaniah, son of, son of, son of, son of, during the reign of Josiah. Now, yes, it is just an introduction, but at the same time, the writers throughout the Bible are deliberate with what they mention. So, if Zephaniah writes his genealogy like this, then perhaps there's something in it we need to note. And I think there is. I think there's two somethings, in fact. The first is his great-great-grandfather's name, which is Hezekiah. Uh, Zephaniah is the only minor prophet to list five generations in his family tree. And he's only going to go back that far if the last name that he mentions is important. And given the timeline of the Bible, his great-great-grandfather is almost certainly King Hezekiah of Judah, which means Zephaniah is from the line of David, which means he represents God's continuation of the covenant that he made with David to bless his descendants, to save his people to ensure that a Messiah would come from David's line and rule forever. And the trust that Zephaniah's line has in the promises of God is seen through their names. Zephaniah means God is hidden. Gedaliah means God is strength. Oh, sorry, God is great. Uh, Amariah means God has spoken, and Hezekiah means God has strengthened me. You'll notice, though, that there was one name missing from that list. The name of Zephaniah's father is Cushi, which is not a common Hebrew name. It's actually a reference to the nation of Cush, which is the ancient name for Ethiopia. Uh, You may have noticed that they got a mention in chapter 3, but they're also mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10, where they're one of the nations that is going to be punished by God for their sin. And then in chapter 3, the restoration that God brings is said to go beyond the rivers of Cush, which is basically a way of saying it's going to go out to the whole world. And given what we know about the alliance between Judah and Cush in the, in the time, which would affect the royal family more than most families, and the fact that Zephaniah draws sort of special attention to Cush throughout his book, it seems as though his grandmother was probably a Cushite. 
And in that case, Zephaniah doesn't just represent God's promises to his chosen people through David's line, he also represents how God is saving the entire world, even beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Isn't it amazing what you can glean from just one verse? Don't worry, we're not going to do that with the whole uh, of Zephaniah. But sometimes that can be the benefit of just taking your time with the Bible. Uh, Looking at the rest of chapter 1, aside from verse 1, one question we might ask is, uh, when is this judgment taking place? On the one hand, we see that uh, Jerusalem and Judah are going to be destroyed for their idolatry and only a remnant will be saved, those who worship God. And we know from history, that is what happened. That is now for us a past event, two and a half thousand years ago. It was what led to the Babylonian exile. But on the other hand, we're told that the whole world will be destroyed. And, uh, you know, looking around, I, I don't think that's happened yet. So what's going on here? Well, this is one of those occasions where biblical prophecy is talking about two times simultaneously. One time that has or is happening, and another that is still to come. Uh, That will be sort of a bigger and greater version of the one that has already come. You might hear this referred to as now, but not yet. The punishment on Judah and the nations around them that we see throughout chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3 is now, as in, you know, in this time, two and a half thousand years ago. But that was just a shadow, an example setting of the judgment that will be coming on the whole earth on the coming day of the Lord, when everything will be swept away. And this sense of now and not yet is important to grasp so that we can understand what God is and is not saying. For instance, I'm sure you noticed during the reading the judgment on Philistia, on Gaza. And the temptation might be to read that and then look at what's happening in that part of the world right now and go, ah, this is about that. But we really need to be careful with those kind of statements. And in this case, I would, I would say that's not what the text is saying. The judgment we see on the nations and on Judah is one that has been fulfilled. These nations were punished for their sin because they didn't turn to God. And they are now specific historical proofs for us of the coming judgment that is taking place generally on the entire world. A judgment that has happened now as an example of a greater judgment that is not yet. So, given that there is a judgment that has come and is coming for idolatry, our next question might be this. What does this idolatry look like? Are we told? Well, yes, I think we are told in two ways one of which is relevant to the time, and one of which is more general. We're told specifically that the gods being worshipped in Jerusalem are the Canaanite god Baal, 
and potentially the Ammonite god Molech. Uh, we did hear it in the reading and it's in the NIV, but I say potentially because there is actually some debate as to whether in the original text, which remember, that's what matters, it's referring to Molech or it's just another reference to Baal. Whatever the best reading is, there's idolatry here. Baal was a storm and fertility god who appears a lot in Israel's past as an object of worship. Uh, whether, as we see in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, through astrology, as in the first half of verse 5, hypocrisy, those who claim to follow Yahweh but actually follow Baal as well, in the second half of verse 5, or self-ruled worship, based in your own home, doing things your way according to your desires, rather than gathering to worship the true God with fellow believers. That's what we see in verse 6. And Molech worship, as an aside, uh, is associated in 1 Kings with child sacrifice. Which is why we have to realise that the problem here is not just that these gods are not God. The second thing we're told is of the character of their worshippers. Uh, you know the saying, you are what you eat? Maybe you don't like to think about it too much, as I say. It's not a literal meaning, of course, but you know what it's getting at. If you eat healthy, you'll be healthy. If you eat unhealthy, you'll be unhealthy. Well, it's just as true to say, you are what you worship. The character of the thing you value most will, over time, be more and more reflected in you. And this is why we read uh, in verse 9 of chapter 1 of the violence and deceit that characterised the worshippers of Baal. In chapter 2, we see that the Ammonites and the Moabites are prideful, mocking and insulting God. The Assyrians, likewise, are prideful and revel in their actions. We explored months ago now, in Nahum, uh, just how violent the Assyrians were. And in fact, it's worth comparing the end of chapter 2 here, in your own time, with the end of chapter 3 of Nahum, because they are very, very, very similar. And then in chapter 3 of Zephaniah, we read that Jerusalem is rebellious, unprincipled, profane, unjust, unrighteous and corrupt. Because that reflects the gods they're worshipping. Gods based on violence, lust, greed and selfishness. Your idols, my idols, whatever we worship instead of God, whatever they look like, are things just as opposed to God and His ways as these idols were just as opposed to his goodness, to his perfection. And so the judgment that is coming on the whole world is due to us for our idolatry, just as judgment was due to the, these nations for theirs. So those are some questions and answers that we might have from these passages. So now thinking back to our big idea, well, maybe these questions have added to your summary of Zephaniah. The people God is saving and restoring are from Israel 
and from the whole world. We see the shadow of judgment in the past to help us feel the reality of greater judgment to come. Or maybe you can think of idols in your life or in the lives of people you know that really bring home the reality of idolatrous sin that we all grapple with. Keep thinking on it, keep thinking on that big idea. But there's one more question I think we can ask. And I would argue it's perhaps the most important question we can ask of Zephaniah, given the big idea we've seen emerge from this book. How has God taken away the punishment for sin? This promise of salvation and restoration we see in the end of the book is a promise of taking punishment away. Chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. The people have still done wrong, yet as we read in verse 17, God will no longer rebuke the people for their sin, but will instead rejoice over them. How is this possible? There are a couple of hints. In chapter 1, verse 7, there's this talk of a sacrifice and certain people God has invited, for whom it seems the sacrifice is for. In chapter 2, verse 3, we are called on by the prophet to seek God in humility and righteousness because he will do something to shelter us from his judgment. But ultimately, these are just hints. And they lead us to the final part of what we're doing this morning, where we put all the pieces together. Because we can only make sense of this sense of sacrifice, this idea of sacrifice, and of being sheltered from God's judgment by God in humility and righteousness, when we look at the Bible as a whole. Because these are the things that turn our eyes towards Jesus. The Bible cannot be properly, fully understood if we aren't examining it through the lens of Jesus. How can God take away punishment for our sin, the punishment for the sins of the world, through the sacrifice of Jesus? He is the sacrifice that God has prepared for those who turn to Him who have been invited and have accepted the invitation. On the cross, Jesus took God's judgment on himself by choice because he is himself God and he desired to rejoice over us. When we read of the Lord, the King of Israel, being with us, our eyes are surely drawn to Jesus as the king, the descendant of David, whose name is prophesied in Isaiah as Emmanuel, God with us. When we read in chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Our eyes are drawn to Jesus who tells us in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, 
you will obey what I command. When we are called to seek righteousness and humility, we can't help, surely, but think of Jesus, who was totally righteous, utterly without fault, sinless, pure, and totally humble. So much so that he humbled himself to death on a cross, as Paul says in that famous passage in Philippians 2. But then, as Paul goes on to say, because of his sacrifice, God has now exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because of that, perhaps most of all, this image of the day of the Lord that is coming should be fixing our eyes on Jesus as the King who is returning to judge the earth. We will be weighed against His scales according to whether or not we've accepted His invitation of salvation through His sacrifice or not. If we haven't, then we're idolaters. And that promise of terrible judgment throughout most of Zephaniah is our future. But if we have accepted it, then that promise of salvation and restoration at the end of Zephaniah is our future. In his second letter, chapter 3, the Apostle Peter writes this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Who can shelter us from God's judgment that is coming upon the entire world, that will burn away everything and show us for who we really are? God himself, the King of Kings, who has, through Jesus, been offered up as a sacrifice for our sake. Who can bring scattered people from across the world that have accepted his invitation through his sacrifice? Who can purify and protect us forever? Who can renew the world and ensure that sin exists no more? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The judge of everything, the sacrifice for sin, and the restorative king. So, what's the big idea of Zephaniah? Does it look any different for you now? Is it maybe just Jesus? That's something for you to work out. 
But you might say something like, through Jesus, God is going to judge the world for human idolatry, but also offers us salvation and restoration. Now, maybe, again, you can think of something better. Why not take the time to do it sometime today? Figure out your own big idea for Zephaniah. And what does this book mean for you and me? Well, I hope it means that we take God's judgment seriously, that we accept the invitation He's given us in Jesus, and that we look forward to rejoicing on the day of the Lord, on the day when King Jesus returns, because of what He's done for us and what we know will be coming in the new heaven and earth. And as well as, I, as, well as that, I hope that this Reformation Sunday, we also thank God for giving us His Word, so that we can know all these things and we can act on them to His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank You for revealing Yourself to us through Your Word. Thank You that from generation to generation You have made Yourself known, that through Your work and Your Word uh, we can know that You are our Creator and so You are rightfully angry when we spurn You to worship other things, to worship created things rather than our Creator. But we also thank You for showing us mercy, for showing us that You in love have chosen people to be saved from Your righteous judgment and that You've done this through Jesus, the most extraordinary sacrifice for our sake, even though we don't deserve mercy, but we're offered it anyway. Lord, help us to never underestimate the immensity of this sacrifice. But more than that, help us, Lord, to live lives that reflect your goodness. Help us to worship you as you deserve and desire for what you've done, so that we might be ready for the day when Jesus returns, Lord. For only you know when this will be. Help us, Lord, to come together as your people, to encourage each other, to share the gospel of Jesus with the communities around us, so that they too may be among those invited in the kingdom on the day of the Lord. And as we anticipate that day, may you help us to do so with eagerness, Lord looking forward to the new heaven and earth, perfected, unblemished, where we can spend forever with you, rejoicing and working together for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.